You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now remember, last week uh, we saw that, that Saul had just been announced as the new king of Israel, but now this morning we see that, that no sooner that he becomes the king, all of a sudden a war breaks out. And what happens is we read that a, a town called Jabesh Gilead is getting invaded by the Ammonites. Now, by the way, the Ammonites, uh, they're located uh, uh, east of the Jordan River in what would be called modern-day Jordan. In fact, the capital of Jordan today is Ammon. And so, uh, and so the Ammonites are invading Jabesh Gilead, and this invasion is being led by the Ammonite king. His name is Nahash. Now, Saul, to his credit, deals with this attack swiftly. In fact, by, by winning this, this victory over Nahash, ultimately, he wins the hearts of the people of Israel. Now, by the way, uh, the name Nahash, as in King Nahash, uh, his name literally from the original language means serpent or snake. Now, keep in mind, in that culture, typically, uh, parents would name their, their babies based on either a physical trait or, or a personality trait. So evidently, there was something kind of reptilian about Nahash. You know, uh, maybe, maybe he was deceitful, maybe he was vindictive, maybe he had little squinty little eyes, whatever it was. His mom and dad look and they're like, you know what? We should name him Snake. <laughs> and so in this passage this morning, we see that Saul becomes the Snake Slayer. So now, as we pick it up in verse 1, the first three verses, we see that Nahash the Snake is launching his invasion. Verse 1. Then Nahash, the, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I'll make my treaty with you, that I gouge out all of your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messages throughout the territory of Israel, and then, if, if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. <laughs> Pretty interesting proposal going on here. Now, it's interesting. Other English translations of the Bible kind of kind of give an indication as to the timing of this. Like, like the New Living Translation, for example, that, that, that verse 1 starts off saying, about a month later, Nahash launches his invasion on Israel. About a month later. And so this is telling us that, that about a month after Saul had been crowned as the king, now the Ammonites are launching this invasion. Why? Well, because Israel was vulnerable at this point. Now, what, what made them vulnerable? Well, keep in mind, Saul had just been appointed as the new king, but he has not had enough time to, to form a centralized government or to, to form a, a national defense, to, to, to form an army. And so because of that, they're vulnerable for attack, which means that, that this region called Gad, which was on the, on, the, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, right on the Borden of Ammon, this, this, this region there, they were vulnerable for attack because Israel had no army. They had no way to defend themselves. And by the way, that's, that, that was the same strategy that was used back on May 14th, 1948. Some of you may, may know that date. May 14th, 1948 was the date that the UN declared Israel as a modern state in the Middle East. Now at that point, that's when, when David Ben-Gurion was, was now named as the first prime minister of Israel. But having become a new government, they, they, they were vulnerable to attack because they didn't have an opportunity to form an army, to form a national defense. I mean, all they had were basically a bunch of farmers with tools. And so that's why on the next day, May 15, 1948, uh, the surrounding Arab states, which would include Egypt and also Jordan, modern-day Ammon, 
uh, it included Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Iraq, and they launched this invasion against Israel because they weren't ready for an attack. They did not have an army yet. That's the same strategy that Nahash is using now. So Nahash, he, he, he's threatening the town of Jabesh Gilead, that he's going to invade, and then all of a sudden they're all like, well, hey, let's play deal or no deal. He's like, okay, I'll make you a deal. The deal is I'll let you live if you let me gouge out your right eye. I'm thinking this has got to be a, a bad deal. There's got to be something else we could work out. Now, it's interesting. Uh, Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, tells us that during this whole month that Saul had just become king, during this month, Nahash was invading from the south to the north. He started off invading the region of Reuben, and then he moved northward along the river up to, up to the region of Gad, and now he's continuing to move northward up to the city of Jabesh-Gilead. And every step of the way, every city, every village that he conquers, he did the same thing, and that was he would gouge out the right eye of every man in every city. Now, why? Well, this was a military strategy. Keep in mind, this would basically render all the fighting men, all of the soldiers, uh, basically useless. You think about it, first of all, the archers in that day, most of them uh, were, were right-handed, which would mean they would aim with their right eye. But you gouge out their right eye, now they've got to shoot with their other hand, but their aim would be less effective. Uh, or for that matter, you know, you gouge out somebody's eye and now, now their depth perception is very distorted and that would make sword fighting, in fact, for that matter, even hand-to-hand -hand combat much more difficult. And then, with, and then with that in mind, typically soldiers would have their shield in their left hand and their sword in their right hand, meaning they would cover up their left eye with their shield and view everything with their right eye. But now if you gouge out their right eye, well, now they've got to hold their shield in their right hand, and now they've got to swing the sword with their left hand, their weak hand, their, their untrained hand. And so in effect, you have rendered them useless. So Nahash is threatening after he's attacked this village and that city and this village and that city. Now he's threatening to do the same thing to Jabesh Gilead. And they're like, hey, uh, give, us, give us seven days to see if, if any of our Israeli brothers will come to our rescue, come and, come and help us. And amazingly, he gives them seven days. And we might think, well, well, why? I mean, why did he give them seven days? Why not just wipe them out? Why not just destroy them? Why did he give them more time? Answer, because Nahash knew something that we don't. You see, Nahash knew their past. He knew their history. He knew that way back in Judges chapter 19 through 21, we read of this strange story of a civil war that breaks out in Israel. And it's a civil war that started when a Levite had a concubine. Now, uh, we could talk about, uh, about whether or not a, Levi should even ha a Levite should even have a concubine, but that's a different sermon for a different time. But he has this concubine who ends up getting raped, and not only raped, but murdered by the men who lived in a town called Gebeah. Now, by the way, remember that name, the name of the town Gebeah. It's going to be very important in our story. So the men of Gebeah rape and murder this woman, this, this concubine. And now with that, the Levite sends a, a message. Now, it's a very graphic message. I'm not going to get into it all right here. But he sends a message to the rest of the 12 tribes of Israel saying, hey, come down and, and help me get some revenge on the men of Gebeah for what they did to my concubine. And so now we're told that, that all of the men in, 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 in all of the cities, in, in, in all of the tribes, they all come to his aid. That is, all of them except for the men of the town of Jabesh-Gilead. They were the only ones who refused to help. They were the only ones who refused to get involved. 
And so all the other men from all the other tribes, from all the other cities, they all come and, and they get involved and they, and, they, and they get some street justice. And then once they exact a, a pound of flesh in revenge against the men of Gebeah for what they did to the concubine, then these men turn their wrath against the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Why? Because they were the only ones who didn't help, who didn't get involved. And so they, now they attack them and they nearly wipe them out. And now years later... Uh, Jabesh-Gilead is basically isolated from the rest of Israel. Because they never got involved, because they refused to get involved, the rest of Israel kind of cut them off, didn't want anything to do with them. They, they, they were isolated from the rest of the land, and that's what Nahash was counting on. Nahash was counting on, on the fact that there was division in the nation of Israel. He's, he's banking on the fact that the rest of the nation of Israel won't help because of what they did years ago. And so he knew that, that because they were isolated from the rest of the nation, they were easy targets. They were easy to pick off. And by the way, that's the same tactic that our enemy today uses. Listen, it, it, it's, it's those of us who get isolated. It's those of us who, who get out of fellowship from the rest of the body. We are the ones when we get isolated that become the easy targets. We're easy to pick off. I've said it before. It's, it's, like, it's like when you watch Animal Planet. You know, you see this herd of, of, of gazelle galloping across the African plain, you know, and then all of a sudden you see this one lowly straggler, kind of like, you know, you know, well, that's the one that the lion picks off, right? He doesn't attack the rest of the herd because uh, there's strength in numbers. He, he, he attacks the straggler, the isolated, the one who got behind. And that's what Nahash is doing here. Now, as we pick it up in verse four, verses four through eight, we see that Nahash, frankly, is hoping to use their past as his weapon. So in verse 4 it says, When the messengers came to Gebeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and, and, and Saul said, What's wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and he cut them into pieces and he sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the, the dread of the Lord fell upon all of the people and they came out as one man. And, 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 and when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah were 30,000. And so now, suddenly, he was able to recruit an army of some 330,000 soldiers. But now we, we want to make note of this interesting phrase in, in verse 4, when it says, the messengers came to Gebeah of Saul. So it's telling us that the town of Gebeah was Saul's hometown. Now, Gebeah is a city, a town within the, within the realm or, or, or region of, of Benjamin. But again, we just mentioned Gebeah a minute ago, right? Gebeah was that city that years ago in Judges chapter 19, the men of Gebeah were the very ones who not only raped, but also murdered that concubine. And so frankly, uh, that was the, the event that, that, that sparked that whole civil war. And so what this is telling us is that it was Saul's ancestors who were responsible for this horrible act, not only against this woman, but responsible for, for this civil war that divided the nation. And so in many ways, their shameful past, it was rearing its ugly head. 
How many of you have a shameful past? How many of you, you know, have, have the, the sins from your past come back and rear their ugly heads? You know, maybe, maybe it's an old flame from the past trying to reconnect. They find you on Facebook. You know, maybe, maybe uh, it's old friends from the old days and they, and they phone you up and they're like, hey, let's get together, you know? Let's get together for old time's sake. So what do you do when your past comes back to haunt you? What do you do when, when your old past rears its ugly head? Well, Colossians talks about this. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Therefore put to death the members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And Colossians goes on to talk about this. But the idea is that what do we do with our old past? We put it to death. In fact, Colossians chapter 3, verse 9 goes on and it says, Put off the old man with his deeds. So when your past rears its ugly head, what do we do? We render it dead. We treat it as, it's dead to us. We are dead to it, and it's dead to us. We no longer live there. And so those those friends from the past, they're dead to us. The the lifestyle, the haunts, the memories, everything that's that's in the past, it's dead to us. And, And by the way, can I just say there's nothing good about the good old days? They're just old. There's nothing good about the good old days. But you know why is it, you know, sometimes Satan comes up, he whispers in our ear, and he's like, hey, remember how fun the, 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 the good old days used to be? Remember all the parties? Remember all the people? Remember how much fun you used to have? But why is it that the devil never comes and whispers in your ear things like this? Never comes and says, hey, remember that time you got so wasted you spent like a week hugging the toilet? Uh, you remember, remember being so hungover, you, you, you couldn't eat, you couldn't even go to work? Do you remember, you remember being so strung out, you lost your job, lost your spouse, and lost your family? No, he never comes with the truth. He just comes with a glorified version of the past, trying to tempt you about the good old days, which were never that good. And so what do we do with the good old days? We render them dead. The old man is dead. In fact, Colossians goes on to talk about putting the old man to death, and it says put on the new man. Put on that new lifestyle. And then it talks about you know, living in the spirit, which is interesting, because then verse 6 goes on, and it says, and the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. Now, like we mentioned last week, when it says the spirit of God came upon him, it's not like in our modern-day vernacular, our modern-day context, where, where he's having like a born-again experience. It's not that he, he, he believes he's born again and now the Spirit of God is dwelling in him. Rather, it says the Spirit of God came upon him, meaning the Spirit was empowering him to do something. I like the way Bible commentator Woodrow Kroll put it when he said, the touching of Saul's heart does not refer to spiritual revival, but to the courage and strength which came from God and enabled Saul and his army to accomplish God's will in the deliverance of his people. And so God's spirit came upon him to to, to enable him, to empower him to do what he's about to do. Now, some, by the way, are bothered because after it says that the spirit of the Lord came upon him, it goes on and says, and his anger was greatly kindled. Some read that and think, well, that doesn't sound very spiritual. I mean, you know, we had expected to say, well, the spirit of God came upon him and he was filled with peace with joy, with patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. You know what that was? That's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And so we think, oh man, if the Spirit came upon him, he'd be filled with joy. But no, it says the Spirit of God came upon him, and his anger was greatly kindled. 
Now, many Bible teachers and, and commentators are very quick to respond and say, well, well this is an example of, of what you would call righteous anger, righteous indignation. Now, what's righteous indignation? Well, it's, it's being angry at the right thing uh, for the right reason and then handling it the right way. Much like Jesus, when, when Jesus drove out the temple merchants with the whip. So now, yeah, you know what? On the one hand, I could agree that perhaps this is an example of righteous anger. But on the other hand, I, I think something else is also happening. I think something else is happening. You see, in this context, it says the Holy Spirit came upon him, and then he, 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 his, his anger was kindled. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because, remember, when we first met Saul back in chapter 10 last week, where was he? Remember, he was hiding in the luggage, right? He was hiding. They wanted him to be king, and he's hiding. And so, you know, it kind of tells us something about Saul. It tells us that, yeah, on the outside, he looked the part. I mean, the Bible says he was tall, dark, and handsome. I mean, he looked regal. And yet, not only did he look regal, he looked like the kind of guy who could lead the troops in battle. That's what he looked like on the outside, but on the inside, there was something else. On the inside, evidently, it, it was like his natural proclivity, his natural personality to hide. Then when the action came, when, 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 when things stirred up, his natural tendency was to look for luggage and hide. That's something about his personality. And so now, I mean, you know, we, we often talk about, you know, fight or flight. It seems like, like Saul's God-given personality at birth was, was he was always flight, always looking for a way to flee, always looking for a place to hide. But now the Holy Spirit comes upon him, empowering him, enabling him to do something that his normal personality would not do. The Spirit comes upon him, and now he's equipped to do something and, and take action. What does he do? What well, says he, he? He takes this oxen, chops it up into a, a number of different pieces, and then sends it out as a message to all the different tribes of Israel, saying, hey, if you don't help, this is what's going to happen to you. And amazingly, it worked. He instantly recruits 330,000 soldiers. Which, by the way, that now means that his army outnumbers the Ammonite army 10 to 1 at this point. Which is why, as we pick it up in verses 9 through 11, that Saul wins. Saul, as we see, slays the snake. Verse 9. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to, to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And when the messengers came and told the men of, J of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people into three companies, and he came into the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived and, and, and were scattered were, were, were so that no two of them could be left together. So now there's a couple things. First of all, Saul sends the message, hey, I've got soldiers. I've got 330,000 soldiers that, that have your back. So now the men of Jabesh-Gilead, in, in verse 10, they send a message and they, they, they tell the king, King Jabesh, I'm sorry, King Nahash, they say, tomorrow we will give ourselves up. Now it's interesting. Some of your translations will say, tomorrow we will come out. Now the phrase there, come out or give up, it's the Hebrew word yasa, and it's a very intriguing word. It's intriguing because it's a word that has a double meaning. On the one hand, it could be rendered this way. It could mean, it could mean well, we're going to come out and surrender, but on the other hand, it could also be rendered we're going to come out and wage war. So it's a very interesting word that was open to interpretation. 
And so it wasn't like they were lying. They are just using a very tricky word. And say, hey, yeah, we're going to come out tomorrow. Now, what the Jews meant by that is, we're going to come out and wage war. We're going to ambush you. We've got a plan. But Nahash, he hears the word, and he assumes it means that they were surrendering. That's what he assumed. And we all know what happens when you assume, right? You get your butt kicked, just like Nahash did. That's what happens. <laughs> and it's interesting. Saul's strategy here, by the way, sounds very sim similar to the strategy that Gideon used back in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, we, we read that this guy named Gideon, he defeated his enemy, the Midianites. Uh, and, and what he did was he, he divided his, his army up into three camps, three divisions. And then at that, he then attacked in the middle of the night by surprise, to take his enemies by surprise. And that's exactly what Saul's doing here. We read that he divided up his men into three companies, three divisions. And not only that, but he, he attacked at night. Now, he announced and said, hey, we're going to come in the heat of the day when the sun is at its hottest point, like, you know, 12 o'clock noon. But then we go on and read, and it says that they actually attacked in the morning watch, which would be somewhere between 3 and 6 in the morning. And so much like Gideon, they attacked under the cover of darkness. They took them by surprise. Now, by the way, that's not the only similarities between Gideon in the book of Judges and Saul in the book of 1 Samuel. For example, Judges chapter 6. When we first meet Gideon, do you know where we meet him? He was hiding. He was hiding in a wine press because the Midianites, were, the soldiers were walking around, and he was afraid the Midianites would find him. So he's hiding in this wine press, and then an angel shows up and says, and says the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Gideon's looking around to see if there's somebody else in the wine press. Can't be talking to me. I'm the guy hiding out. I mean, he wasn't a valiant warrior. If anything, he was more like the cowardly lion, right? He's like, you know, I'm not afraid, 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 afraid. I'm scared of you. <laughs> and so he's hiding in a wine press, much in the same way that when we first met Saul, he too was hiding in the luggage. Not only that, but then in Judges chapter 6, verse 34, it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And then we just read how the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul. And so in many ways, it seems that, that for both of them, as long as, as they were leaning on the Holy Spirit, as long as the Holy Spirit was upon them, they did great. But when they leaned on their own strength, when they leaned on their flesh, when they leaned on themselves, that's when they had problems. That's when they fell. And then also in the book of Judges, we, we read that, that Gideon started well, but he finished poorly. In fact, at the end of Gideon's life, he had, he had multiple wives and he was worshiping the golden ephod, treating it like an idol to worship. And in the same way, in the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to see that Saul starts well, but he finishes poorly. So in many, many ways, it's like history was repeating itself. And Saul was not only making the same uh, 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 victories as Gideon, he was making the same failures as Gideon. History was repeating itself. And now in verses 12 to the end, we now learn some, some battle principles for us today. Verse 12. Then the people uh, said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death today, for today the Lord has worked out salvation in Israel. And then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul the king before the Lord in Gilgal, and there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. 
Now, you may remember last week at the end of the chapter, we saw that, that at the end of, of Saul's coronation where, where Samuel announces to the people that Saul will be their new king, it says this in chapter 10, verse 27, it says, but some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? They look at Saul, he's tall, dark, and handsome, like, how's this pretty boy going to save us? Well, now Saul's newfound army who, who are still amped up on adrenaline, they're not looking for a victory parade. No, they're looking for more action. They're looking for another fight. But the problem is they've already defeated the enemy. And so now what do they do? They start to attack each other. And they're like, you know, hey, we're, 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 we're those worthless men. Let, let's, 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 let's kill them. Let's attack them. And so from this passage this morning, between this battle between Saul and, and, and Nahash the snake, but also uh, with this skirmish, this in-house skirmish at the end of the chapter, we learn some principles that we can apply to our spiritual lives. Because listen, whether you know it or not, the truth of the matter is that if you are a follower of Christ, you are in the midst of an invisible battlefield. The Bible says in Ephesians 6, verse 12, it says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this present age, and against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are in the midst of an invisible battlefield, which is why the Bible warns us not to be ignorant about the devil's schemes. For example, 2 Corinthians 2.11, it says, I, I, I don't want Satan to outwit us. After all, we are not to be ignorant about Satan's scheming. And so from this passage this morning, we see that the, 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 the schemes that Israel's enemy used, Nahash, are still the same schemes that our enemy is using today. So what are those schemes? Well, here they are. Scheme number one, tactic number one, is, is that Nahash the snake attacked Israel when, when they weren't ready. When Saul was still trying to form a new government, he's still trying to build an army, that's when they attacked. And in the same way, the Bible warns us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. He attacks when your guard is down. He attacks when you're not ready. In fact, history tells us that Adolf Hitler had a very interesting way of, of, of launching his attacks. He would often wait till the weekend. Why? Because Parliament was not in session during the weekend. And because Parliament was not in session, it made it harder for them to quickly respond to his invasion. He would attack when their guard was down. It's the same strategy that Nahash used, and it's the same strategy that the, that the enemy today uses. Tactic number two is that Nahash the snake attacked who? He attacked Jabesh Gilead, this, this, this town that had become isolated, this town that, that, that had been cut off. And in the same way, we're warned in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We must never forget that it's when we get isolated, it's when we get out of fellowship, that that's when we are the easiest to pick off. There's strength in numbers. And then tactic number three, Nahash the snake knew their past. In fact, he used their history as his weapon. And in the same way, we must never forget that, that, that our enemy wants to use our past as a launching pad for his attacks. And this is why the Bible warns us in Ephesians 4.27 saying, do not give the devil an opportunity. That word opportunity, in the original language, it's not a word that speaks of timing. Rather, it's the Greek word tapos. We get the word topography from it. 
In fact, it's a military term. It, it, it's a word that paints the picture of a, of a military general who rolls out his map and he lays out the map and then he starts drawing his battle plan on that map. He's drawing his plan out and how he's going to use that topography as his strategy for attack. In fact, that word opportunity, tapas, it can also be translated foothold. Do not give the enemy a foothold. Now, what's a foothold? Well, it's when the army comes in and they overtake a small portion of land. And then from that parcel, they, 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 can, they can set up camp. And from that area, they can then launch their attack. In fact, uh, during D-Day, the Allied forces, uh, when, when they stormed the beaches of Normandy, the first thing they did was set up a beachhead, a, a, a foothold, allowing them a place to, to not only bring in more and more weapons, but to bring in more and more men. And then from that tiny little foothold, they were able to push back the Nazi forces from France. And in the same way, the devil is always looking for a foothold in your life, a place where he can launch his attacks from your life. And so how can we give the devil a foothold? What are things that we do that, that, that mistakenly give him a foothold in our life? Well, in the context of Ephesians chapter 4, remember Ephesians 4 is what, where it tells us, do not give the devil opportunity, do not give the devil a foothold, and in the context of Ephesians chapter 4, it goes on to mention things like anger and, and, and things like, like stealing or foul language or bitterness or wrath or fighting or gossip or slander. But the picture is this. The picture is that if you're not careful, the sins from your past, those lifestyles that you got saved from can be used against you. Your past, your history can be his launching pad, can be his foothold to launch attacks against you. And then finally, we see that the true snake slayer of this passage wasn't Saul, it was the Holy Spirit. Because verse 6 says that the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. And had the Spirit of God never came upon him, none of this would have ever happened. Without the Spirit of God, there was no victory. The, the, the snake slayer was the Holy Spirit who had empowered Saul. And in the same way, there may be some of you here today that have found yourselves in the grip of the serpent. You may have found yourself in a place where, 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 where the devil's taken a hold of your life. And maybe he's taken a hold of your life through drug addiction or, or through violence or, or suicidal thoughts or, or marriage problems or financial crisis or whatever it is. But, but you feel him have a grip and a hold on your life. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ came to set you free. In fact, speaking of snake slayers, some of you, if you remember wrestling from like the 80s and 90s, you may remember Jake the Snake Roberts, who was not only famous for his, for his cruelty, but he was famous for the big python that he always carried around his neck. Now, as it turns out, his nastiness, his meanness wasn't an act. In, in, in fact, he was, he was full of hatred, full of anger. He, he, in his own words, his life was spinning out of control. In fact, he describes his childhood as one horror scene after another horror scene. Here's how his story, his story started. He was born uh, to, to, to his mother, who was just 13 years old, after she had been raped. And then the man that raped her, was, 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 she was forced to marry him. He then was, was taken away from his mom and, and raised by his grandmother until she died of cancer. And then he was then reclaimed by his father and his new stepmother, who not only abused him mentally, not only abused him physically, but also sexually. And they did that to, to his siblings as well. In fact, his, his younger sister ended up becoming pregnant at 13 when she was raped by her father. 
She then leaves home, and then at the age of 17, she marries some guy, but then his ex-wife kidnaps her and murders her. And now with that, Jake Roberts is, is just full of hatred, full of anger, and literally makes an actual pact with the devil. He makes a pact with Satan and he says, you know what, I'll give you anything you want. I'll do anything you want me to do if you get me to the top, if you make me successful. He said, quote, I didn't believe in God, but I was sure there was a devil because my life was a living hell. And he did get to the top. And yet he discovered that fame and, and, and wealth and success, it did not fill the void in his life, the emptiness in his life. So he tried to fill that void with drugs. With, with, with alcohol, with violence, with food, with sex. In fact, he, he became addicted to crack cocaine. In fact, he, he, he was addicted for seven years. He, he, would, he would spend $3,000 a week on crack cocaine. Tried to commit suicide four different times. And then finally in 1991, he attended an, an Easter play with his wife, Cheryl. And during the Easter play, all of a sudden he felt his chest tighten. He felt something going on in his heart. He thought he was having a heart attack. Turns out it was the Holy Spirit touching his heart, convicting his heart, and that was the night that he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And now, Jake Roberts, Jake the Snake, all six foot five, 270 pounds of him, is now an evangelist, and he travels the world preaching the gospel. And I'm here to tell you that the same Jesus Christ who set Jake the Snake Roberts free can set you free. That the same Jesus Christ who set him free can set you free. That the same Holy Spirit who empowered Saul to defeat the snake, to, to, to defeat the enemy, can defeat the grip in your life. He can set you free from the serpent that has a hold on you. Because in John 8, 36, it says, If the Son has set you free, you shall be free indeed. Amen? Father, we thank you that you gave your Son to save us to save us from our sins, to save us from, from, the, from, from drugs, from, from abuse, from the things that were done to us, the things that we've been doing to ourselves. You came to save us because we can't save ourselves. But Lord, not only did you come to save us, you also came and you gave your spirit to us. And your spirit not only came upon us, but, but lives in us, changing us from the inside out. And Lord, we thank you that, that you loved us enough to accept us the way we are, but you also love us enough not to leave us the way we are. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would continue to move in our lives. Break those strongholds, break the grip of the things that have a hold of us, the past, the memories, the relationships. Lord, help us to render the old man dead and to live the new life in your spirit. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.